It's been good to be in worship with you this week. Last week we had an awesome service. If you weren't with us, you can see the recording of it online. Uh, but we had an amazing time of fellowship that happened prior to service. And so I wanted to say publicly thank you uh, to all of you that helped to coordinate the pastoral appreciation fellowship time. Thank you to all of you that gave gifts and cards and notes of encouragement and kids for drawing and all of that went into you loving on your pastors and staff. So thank you so much on behalf of all of our pastoral staff. I just wanted to say thank you. You loved on us well. So you can give yourselves a hand. That's good. Uh, I also wanted to say thank you to the Alden family, uh, or to the Lump family, excuse me, Alden is part of that family, but um, <laughs> the Lump family for stepping into the pulpit and sharing uh, about their trip to Africa. It's not every week that we get to hear about a mission trip these days, and so when they happen, I want to take advantage of of allowing us to participate in that story, and hopefully you got a little bit bigger picture of how big our district is, as we had 20-some people from across this district join together to then go to Nairobi to help our brothers and sisters that are connected to the Church of the Nazarene overseas, and even those that are not connected to our denomination. And uh, hopefully you got a little bit of a taste of how big our world is and how God is doing amazing things in our world. So thanks to them for for sharing uh, their hearts with us last week. We took off from the Matthew text. We took a week off, uh, which is okay, but we're going to be back in Matthew chapter 25 is where we are going to be this week as we come to the end of Matthew's gospel. This has been the assigned text for the lectionary readings, the gospel readings for this entire year, starting last odd. Advent, which was in December. So from December all the way until now, we've essentially been in the book of Matthew, and we're coming to the end of it now. In fact, my last uh, message from this gospel will come uh, in two weeks, the end of November, and then once again, we will start the cycle over. Advent is coming. But Matthew 25, starting with verse 1, it says this, At that time the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later the others also came, Lord, Lord, they said, open the door to us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. 
God, we've come this morning to worship you. And we've already started that. We've worshiped you in, in song. We've worshiped you in giving. But part of our worship is to study the text that you've given us. You've inspired these words through your Holy Spirit as Matthew wrote these words down. You have inspired them, and so they are to be meaningful to us. They are to come alive in us this morning. We need your Holy Spirit for that to happen. The same Spirit that inspired uh, Matthew, to write these words, God, would you grant us the gift of that spirit to receive these words this morning? Help us, God. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We don't know a lot about marriage ceremonies in the ancient world, particularly around the time of Jesus' day. We do know that it was essentially the, the process of Becoming married was essentially a two-step process, particularly in the Jewish faith. The engagement or betrothal was step one of this process, and this was arranged by parents for their young ones. Often, the, the young teenage girls would be 12 to 13 years of age when they'd get married in Jesus' day, and, and the boys were about the average age of 18 is what the scholars tell us. Can you imagine that, teenagers? Did you hear me? Do we have any 12 or 13-year-olds here? <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> Could you imagine mom and dad choosing your spouse for you? What's that? <laughs> it, 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 it's a radically different world then, right? Um, Thankfully, uh, we're not maybe doing that these days, but parents would choose who these arranged marriages would be with, and, and that was the betrothal process. You would enter into the engagement. This was a legal binding contract, actually, so the two were not yet fully married in the sense of living together, but they were married. We see an illustration of this in the story of Mary and Joseph, actually, at the very start of this gospel, where they are betrothed, they are engaged, but not yet having had the marriage ceremony. And you might recall that once Joseph finds out that his, his engaged bride is with child, that he has the desire to divorce her quietly, because the only way to get out of the engagement or the betrothal is divorce, because legally they were already considered married. Thankfully, in the story of Mary and Joseph, an angel of the Lord intervenes, and, and that doesn't happen, but you'll have to come back in December to hear that story if you don't know it. <laughs> Step two, the actual wedding ceremony. And that's what this parable is getting at, is this part of, of the process of becoming married. And we don't have a lot of reliable descriptions of this part of the process, but scholars have been able to piece together bits and pieces, various things. And of course, it, regionally there would be differences. And depending on wealth, there would be differences. But here's what generally is believed would happen. On the day of the wedding, guests and family would arrive at the bride's house. Later in the evening, they would gather in, this, in her home, and there would be entertainment, and there would be food and fellowship, and everybody would be gathered in this home waiting. 
They were waiting for the bridegroom to come, for the groom to show up. Because what would happen is that the groom would come to the, the, the bride's house, and then he would gather her, he would collect her, and then there would be this processional march, often back to his home, his family's home which is where the marriage ceremony would take place. Again, this is in the evening that this would happen, and so there was a need for light. There was a need for torchbearers, and so what would happen is that there would be bridesmaids. There would be, uh, as the text calls them in this, in this case, virgins that would light the way. And think about bridesmaids. These were women who were not yet married, and so these were not older women generally, but these were young girls. 10 to 12 to 13 years of age, that they would have torches, they would have these lamps, that they would have ready so that when the, bride, or when the groom showed up, that they could light it, and then they could be a part of this processional that would make its way to the groom's home for the ceremony. There's even descriptions of this that it's called, this processional, as they light these torches, it's called the Sea of Light. Can you imagine how beautiful this must have been? Of course, in the ancient world, there weren't all the street lights and there weren't all the lamps that we have today. And so all this, this white uh, light pollution that we have, that's not what they experienced. Have you guys ever been in a place where there hasn't been a lot of light? And how valuable light is, but how beautiful it can be in the darkness then to think about this, this processional that's taking place with these young women and maybe servants and maybe some older women that have the torches that they've lit, that they're lining the streets and snaking their way through the village to come to the groom's house. You can imagine how beautiful this was. It wasn't just beautiful, though. It was also symbolic, I think. This idea of light, of these lamps being lit, had to be a reminder to the Jewish people of the very idea, the very concept of God's love. That God's love was breaking forth into the darkness, this, this darkened world that has been affected and, and, and so much has gone wrong because of sin and the introduction of sin. That's what we experience in Genesis chapter 3. And, and from that moment on, God has been trying to break forth and, and his grace has been filling this land in bits and pieces and, and his love is, is pouring out on his people. And so guess what? These marriages are not just about the couple, because there's a third character that's involved in each and every one of these marriages, and at least in, in the concept of Judaism, that, that here is a couple that are coming together in a covenant relationship. Does that remind us of somebody else? Might that remind us of the very God who's chosen to be in covenant with us, his people, that, that every marriage then is sacred because it not only reflects what's happening between the man and the woman, but it also reflects what is going on with God and the world, that God is choosing us. And so the very marriage, each and every marriage, is sacred because it, it reveals to those who are present, look, God's love is breaking forth. Look, God is present in this. This is what it looks like for God to choose us. I hope you can see that the lack of complexity in this parable, we've studied some complex parables and some complex teachings of Jesus of late. 
There's no complexity in this. In fact, I'm not really sure that you need to have a preacher this morning to tell you anything about this passage. <laughs> I shouldn't say that out loud, but it, it, it might be true. I think we could probably just as a community just start talking about, well, I think it means this, and I think you'd probably get there. It's not complex. But I don't think you should dismiss this parable, though. I don't think you should think that, oh, it's about weddings and how frivolous. No, not at all. There's something significant happening in this story that Jesus tells. And friends, it all hinges on ten young ladies. In the Greek, they're literally described as virgins. That's the Greek, if you were to do a literal translation. They're unmarried. They're young, most likely. The Greek can also be translated as bridesmaids, and so there was, in, in ancient Judaism, there was, or uh, in, in Jesus' day, there was the practice of using servants as part of the torchbearers, and even older ladies could do this. But no matter the age, the role of the torchbearer at a wedding processional was to be ready when the groom arrived, because that's when the celebration would really begin. They were to light the way. And as we've already noted, and as you well know, there was no other exterior light going on. So if the torchbearers were not prepared, and if the torchbearers weren't ready for this processional, then there was nothing else to rely on. Nobody had the cell phone with the, the flashlight. Nobody had the porch lights. There were no city street lights. It would have been darkness, and no processional would have happened. There would have been no sea of light. So you can imagine how embarrassing that would have been for those torchbearers and how shameful it would have been in this shame-based culture. So everything in this parable hinges on the actions of ten young ladies. Five are held up to us as models of living faith. Wise young women. And five represent a carelessness that we are not to follow because they were foolish but I want you to notice in verse 5 that the issue at hand, the difference between being wise and being foolish is not that one group was drowsy and fell asleep. Often we find in Scripture that it's the sleepiness that, that is, is being condemned or, or taught against. But in this case, that's not what's happening at all here. They all are waiting and, and there's this unexpected delay that's happening and Everyone becomes drowsy. The wise as well as the foolish begin to sleep. The issue at hand is not that they sleep. The difference lies in the preparations made by the two groups. Not knowing that there would be a delay and the groom would come much later than expected. One group prepared for that by bringing extra oil with them. The other group did not. I don't know how you read or heard this text when I was reading it out loud, but what did you think about verse 8? The foolish one said to the wise, give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. That seems like a reasonable request, right? Oh, we don't have enough oil. We didn't know that the, the groom was going to be so late. Help us. Give us a little bit of your oil. Of course, the five wise ones don't do this. 
And we have to ask, are they being kind of mean-spirited here? Are they being petty? Are they, are they being mean and rude to these five that weren't prepared? And the answer comes that no, they couldn't, be, they couldn't share. I read in my research that these lamps that are being described here would typically burn about 15 minutes, so not very long. And then you'd have to refill and relight, trim it, do all the things that you would need to do. So 15 minutes is not a lot of time. And, and what happens if you take half of what you are supposed to put into your, your lamp and offer the other half to somebody else? Well, actually what that means is the processional can only be about seven minutes long then, not the full 15 minutes. So to share means that they could be walking along and suddenly the processional goes dark. Not a good plan, right? So they say, no, we cannot share. And what do they tell them to do? They tell them to go and, and buy some more oil, which might sound like a ridiculous request because there are no 24-hour convenience stores in the ancient world. Did you know that? I'm really, I'm really trying hard to bring the facts for you. <laughs> you knew that already. You knew that. Maybe. I think you're right, actually, Shane. Because probably what is in mind here is a, a kind of rural wedding ceremony. And, and you can imagine if anybody in here has grown up in a smaller community, you know kind of everything that's happening in that community, don't you? Good and bad. In this case, this is a wedding and weddings were to be celebrated and weddings would have been on the thoughts and minds of everyone involved in the community. So it is not unreasonable to think that they could in fact go to where oil was sold in that community to somebody's house and, and in fact purchase it. The problem is, is it would take time to get there, right? They would have to walk. They would have to find that home. And even if they could buy it, it would take time. And it's the time spent hunting for the oil that causes the five to miss out. The text is very clear. The doors are shut. Now, I don't know what you think about that. That might sound ordinary, and yeah, okay. The event is started. We'll close the doors. But in Jesus' day, it was not actually customary to do this. The doors would stay open. It would be a communal fellowship. And so something's happening here that Jesus is saying something that sounds not quite right. What do you mean the doors are closed? That's not typical. It'd be countercultural. The people aren't expecting to hear that the doors are closed. So Jesus is trying to teach us something here. The foolish, the foolishness of the five comes with eternal consequences. When you hear that the doors are closed... We need to think about the final judgment. That's what this text is hinting at, that one day the doors will be closed. There are eternal consequences. It's clear that Jesus isn't just telling a story about some young ladies. He's trying to teach us, his followers, the church, even though we're not named in this passage as such. That's what Jesus has in mind, you and me. Today, the church universal, all those who proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, not just from this point, but through all eternity, he's asking us to consider carefully what he's saying here. He's trying to teach us something. In the previous parable to the one that I'm focused on this morning that begins in, in verse 36 of chapter 24, 
The message is for the church to be ready for the return of Christ because it will happen in an instant. No one knows when that day or hour will happen, but when it does come, it will be suddenly. So keep watch, Jesus says in verse 42. It will happen in an instant. But this parable, the emphasis is not on suddenness, but it's on delay. Did you notice that? slowness. What, will we be ready for the return of Christ if he is delayed in coming? He represents the groom in this passage. It's very common in the New Testament for, for Jesus to be referred to as the groom and for the church to be the bride. In this case, the bride doesn't show up in this parable because actually it's the five wise virgins and the five foolish virgins that represent the church. Which one will we be? But what will happen if Christ's return is delayed? The emphasis in this parable lies not in staying awake, like the previous one, but in you and I being prepared for the delay. It's easy to think that the Christians thought in Jesus' day that his return, or what we call, of, call the parousia, the return of Christ, the second coming of Christ, that it was going to happen sooner rather than later. That makes sense, right? As, as Jesus goes to the cross, which was unexpected, and, and there's resurrection that happens, and they hear about this, and they see Jesus, and then he ascends to the right hand of the Father, they know that the end will come with Christ coming back, the return of the King. And it would be natural for the early church to think this is going to happen sooner rather than later. This will happen in our lifetime. So it's not too hard to think that the previous parable, the one about the suddenness, keep awake, stay, stay awake, be watchful, be alert, would be the one that would be prevailing in the early church. It's as if they were saying, let's be vigilant, let's make sure that spiritually we are awake because Christ will most certainly return in our lifetime. And we need to be ready. But friends, that didn't happen. In fact, you can go to Second Thessalonians, and you can find that the church was so expectant that, that Christ's return was going to happen that there are people in, in Thessalonica that actually think they missed it. And you can hear Paul write to them, <laughs> you haven't missed it. But once time goes on, once the years pass and the decades pass and the centuries pass, you could see how this parable begins to take center stage. Will we stay prepared? Will the church become negligent as time goes on? Will we become forgetful, lazy, Will we stay prepared? Let's return to the barred door. It's an indication to us that we better get this right. Because there are eternal consequences to this. The groom is at the door and he says, What to those young ladies that are knocking on the outside of it? I do not know you. That's right. Could you imagine coming to the end of your life and hearing those words from Jesus Christ. I don't know you, friend. 
As time has gone on, the importance of this parable has been heightened for us. We can't afford to be like these five foolish young ladies. We need to be prepared for Christ's return. Amen? That was tepid. (laughs) I think we should be prepared. No? (laughs) The question I have for you, church, is how do we stay prepared? In the midst of the routineness of life, in the day-to-day wake, work, sleep, that routine that we do day after day, week after week, year after year, decade after decade. How do you and I stay prepared? In the words of this parable, what does it mean for us to have oil for our lamps? You understand that this parable is symbolic for us, right? The virgins represent us, the church, but what is it that that the oil represents. It seems like this is pretty critical for us if we're to get this right. What is Jesus suggesting is the oil? And it's here that we need to revisit words that we've already heard today. Do you remember Matthew chapter 5? The words that we said in the midst of our singing? You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Do you hear the echo? Here are these five that are prepared. What does that mean that they're prepared? Well, if we're listening to this passage, our light is shined through our good works. Our deeds, enacting the very words of Jesus Christ here at the end of his life. He's calling teaching that puts us, points us back to the very beginning, his very first teachings in this gospel, the Sermon on the Mount. But it's not just this one passage. If you go to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, to chapter 7, picking up verse 24. Listen to this and hear how it might be similar to the parable we've just heard. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and then puts them into practice is like a wise man. Or is it a wise virgin who built his house on the rock? The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against this house and yet did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish person who built their house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Can you hear the echo of this parable? Here, in the very teachings of Jesus, all the way back in Matthew 7, but it's not just that. Go to the verses before that, verse 21 of chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, when did we prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. I never knew you. The five virgins stand at the door knocking to be let in 
And the groom, Jesus, says, I don't know you. Do you hear the connection? I suppose we could think of, since we're talking about symbolism, the oil could represent many things. But at the least, don't you think we should consider that our preparedness for the eventual return of Jesus Christ is us enacting his words, living them. That, in fact, we become wise by doing what Jesus has called us to do. We become foolish by not doing what Jesus calls us to do. And friends, you and I do not know when the end will come. We do not know when Jesus Christ will return. But in that moment when he does, it will be sudden, won't it? It will be unexpected. It will be like a thief in the night, the text tells us. We might not be alive for that. We don't get off the hook, though, because there's another sudden act that's going to happen for us. Our last breath. You don't know when that will be. You have no control over that. You have no control over Jesus Christ's return. You have no control over your last breath. But what do you have control over? The time in between. From this day until that day, you control what you will do and what you won't do. You are the one that can choose to be obedient to the teachings of Jesus Christ. Or we could choose to be disobedient. I don't know about you. I'm not trying to scare you into the kingdom of God, right? But this is life and death. And at the very least, I think you and I should take it seriously. Are we prepared for that last breath? For that return of Jesus Christ? Are we prepared? Will we meet Jesus on that day and he will say to us, good and faithful servant. Good and faithful servant. Or will we hear, I don't know you. I'm going to ask the praise team to come forward. And I think we should just sit with the tension. There's a lot in this world that you and I can't control. But we can control what we do with our lives. Spirit, in these closing moments of worship, corporate worship, where we've been reminded in this ancient text, this ancient story, Would you sift us? Would you help us to discern, are, are we living a life of preparation? Or are we being frivolous? Being tossed to and fro by the things of this world, not really anchored, not really connected to you in a meaningful way. Oh God, here's this opportunity for us if we feel like maybe we're not living as wise as we should based on this text that, that we can offer our lives to you in this very moment. We don't have to wait. That in this very moment, you can offer us grace and mercy and a new identity. Oh God, each of us, I believe in here, want to hear at the end our names. 
We want to be invited by you to enter into your kingdom. So would you help us in these moments as we reflect on these words and on this song? Would you help us to be honest with you? Speak to us, God. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.